Thank you for the reading, uh, Steve. Um, nice to have all of you here again today. It's an honor to be sharing with you. And to the faithful, it's the third time we've seen each other this week. Uh, another two times, it might get a bit long in the tooth, but I, I doubt it. We, we are, it's so nice to spend some time with each other, especially over this special week together. I think we have to always remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And in so, it's an absolute privilege for me to stand here today. I think if you told me four years ago that I was going to share a message on Good Friday about the Lord, I would have laughed at you. And I say that with all respect to the Lord. Um, so I just praise Him for what He's done in my life and in everyone else's life here. I really just want to dedicate this time to Him and then we can go into the message for today. Heavenly Father, I thank You for bringing us together here today, Lord. What a privilege it is to to gather in this country freely where we can worship you. And we just pray for this message that you've helped me prepare, Lord. Please strengthen me. Please give me the endurance to stand throughout this message. And Lord, I pray for the hearts and minds that are here to be opened and to be receptive, Lord. Let us not come with any of our preconceived ideas, but let's just listen to a message that you've given us. So in Jesus' name I pray for this. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to John 19, chapters 28 to 30, rather verses 28 to 30, otherwise it's going to be a long sermon. But what I'd like to do is I'm going to draw five points from this scripture, and not necessarily in the scripture, but I'm going to go full circle. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Many of you know that I love looking at the shadows of the Old Testament and showing people why Jesus was the Messiah, and what a better day to do it. And then today, then we're going to go and draw on a man in the New Testament. I'm not going to tell you who he is now. I'll let you guys think a bit and how the Lord Jesus changed his life among many other people. And then I'm going to take you through the process on the cross of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to lay a foundation for us. We're going to just go through those two scriptures quickly just to paint a picture for us. Context is really important. And as you know, the message for today is it is finished. The book was written by John. So John is an apostle of Jesus. You know that he was spent a lot of time with Jesus. And so he was known as part of the intimate three. It was James, it was John, and it was Peter. And they were all three there on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you can remember that, they went up to the Mount. Moses and Elijah were there. And John was really close to the Lord. He was next to the Lord at the Last Supper. And he was really, really intimate. He knew the Lord really, really well. So he writes in verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now spending time in the message this week and just trying to, to put the scriptures together, all the things that were now accomplished were the mission that God had sent Jesus Christ on. He accomplished the ministry, he accomplished healings, he accomplished... Um, giving sight to the blind, letting the lame walk. He taught, he preached, he cast out demons. He did many, many things as was spoken of by the prophets. But on the road to Calvary, you must remember that this process, he was beaten, he was maimed, he was scourged, he was mocked for you and I sitting here today. And what is important and most important when John is saying after this, this means the plan of redemption 
has been put in place by the Father. The spiritual separation that Jesus had on the cross had now been complete. And all the messianic prophecy, in other words, everything spoke of in the Old Testament of Jesus' first coming and crucifixion, was now fulfilled. The Lord had brought that to completion. The verse then finishes by saying that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus said, I thirst. Now Jesus said seven things on the cross, and I'll harmonize those for you later. But just keep that in the back of your mind that Jesus said, I thirst. Verse 29, John goes on to write, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. And I really grappled with the fact that there was sour wine just lying around with the Romans. I do not understand it till to now. Previously in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus was offered what we know as gall and sour wine and vinegar, but Jesus rejected it. And if you think of it in our modern context, if we've got a sore toe or a tummy sore, we take a pain pill for that. But Jesus himself said he cannot take any pain medication because the full wrath of God abides on him. And it's really important for us to know that. In this instance, the sour wine was there. Jesus was in his sixth hour on the cross. He was tired. He was dehydrated. He was dying. And so, as my palate is pretty much stuck to my, stuck to my mouth now, Jesus' was stuck to his tongue to his palate. My apologies was stuck to his mouth. And that is very important to know that he needed this vinegar to quench, just to wet his mouth so that he could say something. This is a parallel to Psalm 69 verse 21, where the psalmist writes, And for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I touched on it last week at Merodown. We looked at Psalm 22, a messianic psalm. In other words, a psalm that looks forward to Jesus' fulfillment. And in that context, there's five things that David writes that really were fulfilled at the time of the crucifixion. And he writes in Psalm 22:15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. So you can see why Jesus needed this vinegar. Verse 30, John writes, So when he, Jesus, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The wine was needed so that Jesus could get out his last two statements on the cross. The first one was, it is finished. And the last one was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For the context of today's message, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, which means it is paid in full. I'll touch on that a little bit later. But the important thing is here is that Jesus saying these things reflects the end of the process by which the creation was redeemed from sin and curse. Jesus said it was finished, like I said earlier, meaning it is paid in full. Now you might be looking at me and thinking, well, what was paid in full? Folks, it is our sins that were paid in full. In other words, Christ's death on that cross was the atonement for our sin. And if you look at the word to Tetelestai, in the Roman times when you had um, say, for example, you owed me two rand. You paid me my two rand back. I gave you a piece of paper that said to Tetelestai. Thank you for your payment back. It is paid in full. And just closing on the last bit, Jesus says, uh, John writes, my apologies, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In other words, Jesus laid his life down for us. Yes, his life was on the cross. His life was taken on the cross. But he voluntarily said, 
It is finished and he gave up his spirit. So now that you have the background to those texts, the foundation is laid. We're going to draw on five points. As I said, three are prophetic. And don't be scared of prophecy, folks. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. All these prophecies that have been fulfilled in the New Testament has been absolutely amazing. There was a figure that I read this week. And you're going to think I'm just hashing out a figure. It's actually this guy really worked it out. For eight of the prophecies to be fulfilled of Jesus in the Old Testament would be equivalent to 10 to the power of a million trillion. So my calculator unfortunately only has 10 digits. This brother must have had a calculator that big. But he fit these digits into that calculator which shows you the way that the Lord works in prophecy. So the first one we're going to look at is point number one. And that's the triumphal entry. And I'm going to look at a time called when. So the triumphal entry, when? And we're going to look at the prophecy of Daniel. Now many folks get scared when, when they read through Daniel. Um, there's so many prophecies in Daniel and so many ways that he received visions. And it's just absolutely amazing what he writes. So as we know, Daniel was in Babylon. He was exiled to Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar went and destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem. And so he carried a whole lot of people with him to Babylon. And Daniel was part of this crowd. This prophecy specifically was written in 538 BC. And the reason why I'm giving you the date is because it's really, really important to know how long before Jesus Christ this prophecy was written. We know this by Daniel 9 verse 1. In Daniel 9 verse 1 he says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes. Some of your translations might read Ahasuerus. But that's how we dated from extra biblical sources that it was written in 538 BC. So Daniel is receiving this prophecy from Gabriel. And Gabriel says to him, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, as you know, a command went out to go and rebuild Jerusalem. There were two decrees given. The one was given to Ezra to go and rebuild the temple specifically, which was given before this, which is where a lot of people do get confused. Remember, there was two decrees. The one was to Ezra for the temple. This one was to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's really, really important when we look at the context of this, this prophecy and this word from the Lord. Until Messiah the Prince. Who's Messiah the Prince? Okay, thanks, thanks Graham Taylor, that's, that's appreciated. Until Messiah the Prince is Jesus. And that is really important to remember in the context of this prophecy. There you'll see after that it says, There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. Now the Hebrew word for weeks is actually a word, Shavua, which means a period of sevens. So it should actually read, There shall be seven sevens, and some of your translations will read like this, and there will be sixty-two sevens. So I know the mathematicians are sitting here now and their brains are going wild. I'll help you out quickly. Seven sevens are 49 and 62 sevens are 434. So the reason why we know this is years and not weeks or days is because it took Nehemiah 49 years to rebuild the temple. So you add those figures together and you get to a figure of 483 years. Now the calculations, there are various calculations. I'm not going to get into that now. But you've got the Hebrew years You've got the Julian calendar, you've got the Gregorian calendar, 
leap years and specific days, which makes it 483 years to the exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but when I heard this for the first time, I was blown away at how precise the God is that we serve. Luke 19.38 reads, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In other words, Luke is writing back to that prophecy where Daniel said, Until Messiah the Prince. In other words, this was the last time that Jesus was going to be presented as the King. And many people in that day, more importantly we must understand, were seeking prophecy and looking out for prophetic things that were going to happen. An example for you is in Jesus, when Jesus was presented at the temple. Do you remember, um, it was Anna and Simon, Simeon? Am I right? And they were waiting there for Jesus. Now how did they know Jesus was coming? They obviously read the Old Testament and they knew at this time they were to look out for the Messiah. Psalm 118.26, the psalmist writes, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until Messiah the Prince, exactly the same thing. John 12, verses 12 to 13, the next day which John is talking about, the triumphal entry, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Daniel then prophesies in Daniel 9.26, the verse after the verse we just covered, and he prophesied that the Messiah would then be cut off. In other words, he would be crucified. So point number one, when we know exactly to the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem. Point number two, we're going to look at triumphal entry number two, and we're going to look at the way that Jesus came in. And this was prophesied by a prophet by the name of Zechariah. Remember I told you that Ezra received a decree earlier to go and rebuild the temple. Guess who was with him? Zechariah. Zechariah went back to Judah to go and rebuild the temple with Ezra. And what's important to know that is in the book of Zechariah there are eight extremely important prophecies. They are in depth, they are detailed, which is really important to know. But some of them predicted the overthrowing of the Gentile powers. Others predicted that a remnant will remain, a remnant of believers. Jesus' second coming in detail was prophesied about in Zechariah. But for the context of today, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. Look what he writes in Zechariah 9 verse 9. Bear in mind this is 520 BC. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What I find really amazing about that passage is that he says there, Zechariah writes, he is just and having salvation. He's not what the Jews understood to be a conquering king to come and deliver them from bondage of Rome. It doesn't say that. He says he is having salvation. In other words, he has to go and die for you and I. Matthew 21, verse 1 to 5, Matthew writes, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, don't think my pronunciation is wrong, we say Bethpage, but it actually reads Bethphage, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. 
All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Graham Taylor's on form, Zechariah. He writes in verse 5, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 520 BC, add 30 odd years for Jesus in AD, you're looking at a prophecy that was fulfilled 550 years later. That is truly amazing. So the first one to remember is, we know to the day when Jesus came in to Jerusalem. Now we know the way that Jesus came in. He came on a uh, donkey or a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're going to go to point three. And in the, in the prayers, in the pre-service, Lawrence brought up the scripture, which is just such a confirmation of what the Lord helped me through this week. And we're going to look at Isaiah. And the prophecy, and the point number three says the suffering servant. And who exactly is Isaiah talking about? The suffering servant. Isaiah 53 verse 4 to 6 reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah, Isaiah lived 700 years B.C. He prophesied. He was a prophet, a prophet par excellence. He was a meticulous prophet. He knew exactly who the Lord was. Obviously, just as much as the other prophets. This is for the context of this scripture. He served the Lord for 60 years. Now, I don't know many of us that can serve the Lord for 60 years and that have served the Lord for 60 years. That is a real commitment and a real trust in the Lord God Almighty. Fast forward 2,600 years later, approximately to 1947. What happens? A guy's running around in the Qumran caves and he founds what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. What is really important to know is that this, the scroll of Isaiah was found intact, 743 centimeters long. So it's 7.4 meters long, this scroll had the writings of Isaiah on. They dated these writings to around 200 B.C., which then confirmed all the other writings between 700 and 200 B.C. We serve an amazing God, brothers and sisters, I must say. Matthew 8, verse 17, Matthew writes, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.24, he writes, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. A lady by the name of Deborah Ann writes a poem in and around these verses, and she writes, Pierced by our sins, afflicted with their pain, the Son of God dies for our eternal gain. Crushed and rejected, bearer of our sickness, his stripes are a display of grace and forgiveness. Stricken and cut down, all our iniquities taken. The healer of humanity hangs dying and forsaken. Bruised but not broken, Jesus lives today. But the world so far from him still turns the other way. Pierced and afflicted for our eternity's gain. Jesus nailed to the cross. Oh, think of the pain. These three prophecies, 550 years and 700 years, 
is what the Lord made these people write so that they would know exactly when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the way He would come into Jerusalem, and how He would be, how His death would come about and in what manner. And that was how He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Point number four, I know you've all been dying to get to this point to know who I was going to talk about. Point number four is the wonder of encounter. The wonder of encounter, and I've called this the Messiah, changed my life. Now I assume that the staff and the, the people that I work together with here know who I'm going to talk about. But I'm back to the man, Nicodemus. I love the story of Nicodemus. Other than the conversion of Saul, Nicodemus, the story of Nicodemus is just unbelievable. In John 3 verse 1 to 4, Nicodemus meets Jesus, right? He knows that um, Jesus is a man that does many miracles because he says no one can do these miracles unless God is with him. So he says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Really important to know, he was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews, and he worked in the council. This man came to Jesus by night. So obviously he's scared of the Jews, he's scared of the council, he doesn't want anyone to see him. So he decides to come to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What I find amazing here is that you can see how Jesus has touched Nicodemus's life. Now think about your own life in this situation. How has Jesus touched your life, if any? I do know that Nicodemus was touched because seven or four chapters later, let's call it a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, we don't know the time frame. Uh, Nicodemus is standing in front of the council now and they're asking, why haven't they brought Jesus yet? And John 7, John writes this, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? In other words, Jesus. The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. So you can see what the work of Jesus is evident to them. They can see how he is transforming and, and healing other people and doing all sorts of things that the Father is letting him do. The Pharisees immediately asked him, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So immediately the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're going back to the law. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So now Nicodemus is standing there. He's met the Lord Jesus. He's gone to a passage of time. And obviously, as when I met the Lord he made me think so, so much. He made me think, test me, see, go look at the word, ask people, check if I'm real, because I'm telling you, I am who I am. Nicodemus is then protecting Jesus. So in the first instance, he meets Jesus, he protects him, and guesses around in the third instance again. At Jesus' burial, Nicodemus, in John 19, is there with Joseph of Arimathea. And it says in verse 38, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, so Joseph was also in secret, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. Verse 39, guess who shows up again? Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh 
and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Now, according to my calculations, that is quite an expensive offering. But what we look at here is that Nicodemus honors Jesus. He meets him. He stands up for him. He boldly proclaims his name in front of the people. Says, "How can you trial him if he hasn't done anything?" And then he says, uh, "Oh, then he's at the cross with Joseph, and he's taking him off the cross. He's wrapping him. He's honoring him." Folks, that is the process of what it means to be born again. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know Him? This is what He does. This is what Jesus does. You cannot deny Him once you've met Him. And once you've repented. In other words, we have always, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us have come from a place of either still being in unbelief, moving to belief. Once you accept Him as your Lord and Savior, He changes your life forever. I can vouch for that and many of you can as well. You now live your life for Him and not for yourself. So to recap, we know exactly when Jesus came in. We know the way that He came in. We know who Isaiah was talking about when he spoke about the way that He would die. And now we know the wonder of an encounter. And that was one of many people in the New Testament that had the privilege of being around Jesus. And so do we today. And Steve will talk about that on Sunday. But so do we have the privilege of being with the Lord Jesus today. Why? Because He is resurrected. He is alive. Going into our last point, I hope you're all awake. I've labeled this worthy of worship. The supernatural, the natural can't comprehend. The supernatural, the natural can't comprehend. So here's a picture. Picture yourselves there in Gethsemane, in the garden. Jesus is troubled. He's sorrowful. He's even sweating what Luke writes down as drops of blood or what seemed like drops of blood. And apparently in a situation of pressure like this, we too will sweat drops that look like blood. Judas rocks up with a crowd that he brought to come and take Jesus away. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And so Jesus goes into face six trials. I don't know if we know this, but he faced six trials in the space of about ten hours. The first three trials were religious trials. He was in and around Annas, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. So those are the Jewish trials. And then you had the civilian trials. The three civilian trials were in front of Pilate. Then Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. He goes down. He gets crucified. Well, he first gets beaten. Um, last week I explained to the Meridown crowd how the process of this happened. But um, the Romans used what was called a flagellum, which was leather prongs or leather whips with prongs on them. And so every time they... They would hit Jesus. They would physically rip skin off of his body. They take him to the cross and now Jesus is on the cross. Matthew says that it was the third hour. We might see that it's three in the morning, but the Jewish day starts at six in the morning, ends at six the next morning. So this is nine o'clock in the morning. The Romans are there. They're dividing the garments as prophesied in Scripture as well. And this is where Jesus makes the first of his seven statements. Remember I spoke earlier about the statements I'd like to harmonize. And this is exactly where we're going to do it. The first of the seven statements, and just picture this. Jesus is on the cross. He's just been beaten. He's been spat on. Everything has happened to him. The worst pain that we could ever imagine. And he says, he looks at the people and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Then the two thieves get into some argument. They're looking at Jesus and the one thief says, Well, if you're Jesus and the Son of God, then why don't you take yourself off the cross? And the other thief says, hang on, um, I think you've gone a bit too far there. Um, this, surely after his heart was opened, he knows that that is the Lord of the God, uh, Lord, 
the Lord, yes. So Jesus said to the thief, Assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Second statement. The third one is when Jesus is on the cross, John is there with his mother, uh, with Jesus' mother, with Mary Magdalene. Remember Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. Mary the wife of Clopas, who is the mother of James and John, the sons of Thunder, or the, son, the Boanegres, the sons, as they're known in Scripture. And then Salome, Jesus' mother, was there as well. Jesus' mother's sister, sorry. And the third statement that Jesus said was, Woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. A complete shift in responsibility for both John and for uh, Jesus' mother. They were now to look after each other. Then we get to the last three hours on the cross. So 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. There's complete darkness, as the scripture says. And the first thing God, uh, Jesus says is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now many people look at this and say, Oh, well, Jesus obviously saying that wasn't the Son of God, because why would he say that? But I just want to open this up to you, is that your sins and my sins, past, present, and future, and we were what, about 150 people in here maybe? Over 7 billion, let's say 10 billion people, all their sins were laid on Jesus at this specific time. That spiritual separation from the Father must have been agonizing. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus said, I thirst, relates back to the scripture that we read. And then he said, it is finished. It is finished to tell us die. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, was the last one. The supernatural that the natural can't comprehend is this. The temple curtain was torn in the temple from top to bottom. There were earthquakes in and around when Jesus committed his spirit to the Father. And people rose from the dead, walking back into town. Do not ask me to explain that to you, because I can't. But the word of the Lord says that. And most importantly, Matthew 27:54, there was a centurion there that testified and said, This truly was the Son of God. And there's a little bit of medical proof for you. In John 19.34, Jesus' side was pierced, which caused a sudden flow of blood and water. And medically, when a man dies, there's two components of his blood that separate. The red color retains the color of the blood, and the other is a clear fluid-like liquid. This is medical proof that Jesus was really dead. So we knew how, or sorry, we knew when Jesus came into Jerusalem. We knew the way that he was going to come in. We knew who Isaiah was prophesying about when he spoke about how he was going to die. We know about how he transforms lives. And if you look at the life of Nicodemus, and we now know that he is worthy of all our praise. In closing, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for you and me. He was maimed, he was beaten, he was scourged, he was spat on, and the wrath of God was upon him. Crucifixion was the most important event in the Christian faith. And why? Because your and my sins have been paid and atoned for. Whether you believe in Jesus or you do not believe in Jesus, He still died for you. Jesus' Jesus's work on the cross gives us new life. In other words, His Holy Spirit now is given to us to transform us. Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 6 to 8, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. 
verse 8, But God demonstrates His own love towards us, in that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, it is finished. It is paid in full. To tell us die. C.H. Spurgeon or Charles Spurgeon conveys it nicely when he says, The word testelestai is an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain to it. It is deep, I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the Lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to His people. This is the royal dish of the Feast of Love. Lastly, my Lord and Savior Jesus came, the one whose body I did maim. A plea of thanks for forgiveness. Lord, I bring you all my goodness. Our Father in heaven has set us free, His bloody sacrifice on that tree. I thank you publicly, Lord of all, whether summer, winter, spring, or fall. Jesus Christ, my Savior, reigns, the earth in constant birthing pains. Taken by your Holy Spirit, here I stand in your limit. Father God, Spirit Son, a battle at Calvary most definitely won. I look up to the sky with thanks every day, a majestic creation always at play. Thank you, Father, for redeeming me. Yahweh, Yeshua, Ruach, three. Our God adores humanity. I stand here boldly with my life before thee. Folks, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. You either choose him or you reject him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, thank you for that sacrifice on the cross. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for me and for every single person here. And Lord, I pray that this message falls on open hearts and minds to know that you told us exactly when Jesus would come. You told him the way that you would come. And we told us who the suffering servant is and how he would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Lord, as you transformed Nicodemus's life, you've transformed many of our lives. And we are ever grateful for that. You are worthy of all the praise, Lord. In Jesus' name I commit this day to you. Let us remember what you've done for us on Calvary. That hill at Golgotha. Your precious name. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.